podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So welcome everybody to episode five now of Macklin's Take. Hot on the heels of episode four, we're just trying to crank it up a little bit. Thanks for the feedback uh, that you've been giving over the last few weeks. It seems to be going down quite well, this. I have no idea how many people are listening to it, because that's one thing I haven't worked out how to do yet, is how to uh, track the numbers. But um, we've been getting some good responses on Twitter, uh, and we're definitely enjoying it anyway. So once again this week, you're with me, Andy Clark, Matt Macklin, as always. And our special guest this week is uh, Dave Coldwell, Dave Crossbar Coldwell, as I like to <laughs> call him after his triumphant appearance on uh, Soccer AM a few weeks ago, where he he nailed the crossbar crossbar challenge with a with a nonchalance that um, a debonair nonchalance that bordered on contemptuous, quite frankly, uh, in the face of David Dunn, the Premier League footballer who didn't manage to do it. Um, and Dave, it's great to have you with us. Uh, we we see you regularly, of course, in the corner and also joining us on Sky Duty, which is what we're all doing together tonight. We're very much looking forward to Sorung Versailles against Estrada, and we've just got a little bit of time to, to fit this in before that. So I thought it might be quite interesting to have a bit of a a life and times of, of Dave Coldwell. Boxing fans, dedicated boxing fans will be aware of, of your career. More casual boxing fans will know you from the last few years, as will sports fans to be honest in the, yeah. the, the big occasions that you've been involved in but so let's go a bit further back because I think this is something that people probably don't know too much about is the earlier days we touched on it a bit when I came up with with the zone before the Usyk fight so uh just rewind a few years the young Dave Coldwell getting into boxing how did it how did it happen it was a very young Dave Coldwell it seems like many moons ago um I was 15 when I first walked through the door of uh, Brennan Ingalls' stable in, in Winkermank. Uh, the whole and the sole reason of, of walking in through those doors was because uh, I, used, I used to get terrorised at school. I had a, I had pretty much a, you know, a, a bad childhood. Um, wasn't a happy childhood. Um, and I got to 15 and it got that bad. It got to a point where I thought to myself, fast forward a few years, that it's all right getting getting physically and mentally tortured every day while I'm 15. But what happens when I've got a kid and I'm walking down the street and you want your kid to be able to look up to you and you want to feel that you can protect your, your kid, whether it's a boy or a girl. Um, and uh, and I thought, I had them thoughts at 15 and I, and I thought, I've got to do something about it. And I remember I used to get up, watch Mike Tyson in the middle of the night and I, I always remember uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Agler. They were the two fighters that got my really got my juices flowing. Nigel Benn as well. He was the other one, and and but I was playing football. I wasn't. I, I wanted to box. My, my my mother won't let me box, um, but I was just a fan. Um, and at fifteen, I thought, no, I, I left home. And as soon as I left home at fifteen, I was like, right, I'm going to box. Um, and and it was just <laughs> well, quite funny because it was solely for the purpose of of learning how to fight. And I can go and get them back one by one. Everybody, everybody made my life hell. I can go and get them back one by one, and and that was the reason why I, I you first had a list. started. <laughs> I had a list. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I think a list for as long as I am my height. <laughs> did you work through it? I did. Do you know what? Funny thing is, I never did because that's the beauty about boxing is you can go into it for the wrong reasons, and which that is really is the wrong reason. Um, and and once I walked through them doors. Actually, no. The first time I walked through the doors when I finally got got the confidence to walk in, I've never been in the gym before, and I've walked in, 
and I've, I've took about five paces. You've, you've both been to Wink Bank, so I've walked five paces through the door. And I've looked to my right, and there's this big black guy just growling at me. He's got this bar on his back, and he's looking at me, and he's growling at me. And I absolutely crap myself. I walked straight back out of the door. I'd never seen somebody do a squat before. Now, when you're squatting, you're growling out, you're pulling nasty faces. That's what he was doing. It turned out it was Paul, Paul Stinger Mason. I don't know if you remember him. Um, he was a good fighter, a good young, uh, old school boxer as, as we used to have back then. Um, and it turned out he was one of the nicest guys that I've, I've ever met. Um, and he was a good friend of mine while I was down there. I walked out the door and it must have been about 15 of the longest minutes of my life for me to pluck up the courage to walk back in. But I did and it was the best thing I ever did. Ring any bells with you that, Matt? No, not really. I think the first time I came across Dave, he was doing the corner for an opponent of mine. Dean Walker would have been January, February 2004 on one of Joe Calzaghe world title defences in Cardiff. And uh, it was actually my um, comeback fight after my first loss to Andrew Facey. Uh, my first fight with Billy Graham. And uh, I think I stopped doing about 30 <laughs> seconds. So yeah. our, our encounter was brief. Mine and Dave's. I yeah. just went over to the back, corner. Back then, this is where... People think that I just popped up with with, with Bellew and and you know just when Twitter were invented or something. But I I started off with kids. Uh, I started training kids in nineteen ninety six. Then I got my first gym in two thousand, and I had a couple of young prospects. But then mainly I looked after journeymen. Uh, I had people like Daniel Thorpe. Daniel I had Daniel Thorpe fight live on ITV in front of ten thousand people um, in the arena and six million on on ITV against Amir Khan. So I had a, I had a, a set of journeymen, and Dean was one of them who would go in. And to be fair, Dean was Dean was tough. So you punch a little bit hard, um, and and you dispatched him really quickly. And I remember, I actually remember him coming back, and he said it, it'd never been it like that because Dean was a tough fighter. I know? remember he had a decent record. I think he was eleven and yeah, one. Yeah, he was. It went, and I looked at the, you know, he hadn't really he fought just punch. at the level I had or anything like yeah, that, and it, I just. I, seen him he's pretty square yeah I don't know you, you might have written more I don't know <laughs> <laughs> so what was life like cornering guys like that you, you had a, a, a professional career yourself yeah you, yeah, you I did, stepped yeah. through the ropes so. I, don't really, I don't really talk about that <laughs> we don't have to get into that we don't have to get into that box rake is there for a reason people <laughs> yeah, can have a look if with, they want for dodgy photos um, but you had that education at the Ingle yeah. gym and I'm sure you would have taken that with you when, yeah. when you took to, to training and to coaching yeah I'm the thing, the thing is, um, when you when you're working with fighters like Dean, like like Daniel Thorpe and people like that, when you're working with journeymen and they're going in against killers, you know, big prospects, the promoters, own fighters, a big prospect, big punchers, you've got to na- you've got to navigate them, and you know it was it was it, that's part of your experience in boxing that you can put in with prospects and 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 champions because they're gonna have rounds when. They're having tough rounds when they're losing rounds and you've got to get them through and where, where they might get hurt with a shot. Now, when you've done uh, uh, countless fights with guys like that where you're going up to Scotland, you're going to London, you're going, you're away fighting all the time, and a lot of times where it's a case of making sure your fight doesn't get stopped, um, you learn how to how to deal with fights like that. And you learn how to... Uh, it's a different type of looking after your prospects and things. But... Everything comes back, and when you have these fights where the close, hard-fought rounds, rounds where your man's losing, you can draw on that kind of experience. So I don't look, you know, I, I don't look at that and say, "Oh, well, you know, you, you, you had a stable full of German and stuff." I don't, I'm, that's part of me. That's part of what what's made me today. So you know, I'm quite proud of that. 
In training terms as well, it's always kind of struck me that with that kind of background, and it's the same for some other trainers, I'm not saying that other trainers get get sucked into the hype of a prospect who's got Olympic background, who's got a medal, who's had a top international amateur career, but you definitely aren't. It's it's all kind of face value with you. It's all about what can you do now. That's good that you've done that, but that's over now. Yeah. I mean, is that fair? Yeah, 100% fair. I I mean, I am... Amateur boxing and professional boxing, I mean, you both agree, completely different. You know, it's completely different. And, and people, some people believe because they've succeeded in, in, in the amateurs that they're automatically going to succeed in, in the pros. Forget about the Olympians. I remember going back in, in, in our time in, when we were fighting, there was a kid that won everything in the amateurs, a kid called James Branch, I think he was. And he was seen as he was going to be the next star. His son's fighting now. His son's really? a young pro now. Well, that, that shows how old how old I am. Um, but, I remember that. Yeah. But, but he got the he, big build up, the yeah, he had the big build special up. branch, 007, yeah, all that yeah, talk. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And and he is the one that I've always carried forward in my mind to as to to remind fighters that just because you're winning these titles in amateurs doesn't mean that you're going to be a, a massive success in, in the professional game. But then obviously these days now, it's gone to another level because of Team GB and because of all the Olympics and, and the Olympians that we've got. They've gone to another level of expectation, another level of, of, of um, where they're just given, it's a given that they're going to succeed. They go straight with, them, with the big promoters and they're just they're groomed to become world champions almost. But it's not as easy as what they think it is. Once the real fights, fights start coming in, it's not as easy. I think as well that some of these GB guys that are in that system, they're well looked after, they're well funded, and I know some of them are tied in contractually, but I think, and look, it's, it's everyone's a little bit different, but I think some of them are staying amateur a little bit too, too long. long now. Yeah, 100%. You know, yeah. I, I think, look, I was 18 when I had my last amateur fight, maybe I went a bit too soon, but certainly... There are guys now that turn waiting to the twenty five and yeah. twenty six, twenty seven, even, and I'm yeah. thinking, mm, yeah. you know, you're, you're missing the boat here. You, you, yeah. you, you want, you're not allowing yourself any time. Things have got to go really smooth. Any injuries or fallouts yeah. or setbacks, yeah. and you, you know, you've lost a year that you haven't got. Yeah, and I just think that, you know, really, physic. Like I say, everyone's different, but generally, between sort of twenty three, twenty eight. There, you're probably your best years, yeah. phys- physical prime. You know, I know 29, 30, no, I just, for I, some I, people. I, but I agree what you're saying totally. I mean, I can I can speak from experience because Anthony Fowler, now Anthony Fowler, he's 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 27, 28. He might be he might have just turned 28 actually. Um, he's only been pro 18 months, and because he's he's held on, held on. He's already got a lot of miles on the clock yeah, because he's had yeah, so many wars yeah. in hard international tournaments. Yep. And then when when we talk about how the the amateur game, the pro game is different, and you have to be able to adapt. He's gone because he's, he's he's long in the tooth as an amateur, and he's had so many fights and two hundred odd fights, two hundred nine, two hundred ten fights, and he's you know twenty six, twenty seven when he's turning pro. You you you're trying to. You want, as a coach, you want time to mould them and to, to adapt them in, into the pro game. But as a promoter, because he's got this background of, of being a Commonwealth gold medalist, being an Olympian and everything, there's a demand from TV and from fans to rush them and, and, and get him in there. So if you think about it, he just had his 10th fight and it was a great fight, great experience, but he lost his 10th fight. But... If you if if you were a normal fighter on on the circuit that's not been an Olympian or anything like that, 
you wouldn't have you wouldn't have had to have been rushed like that in ten fires. Look at Cordina. Look at what he's doing in ten fires, nine fires. You look at Akole. Akole's been getting a lot of criticism lately as well because his fights haven't been as exciting stuff like that. But he's still a raw novice, and he's still got a lot of developing to do. Somebody like a, a Cordina, he's quite. He's smooth, he's silky, he's got a lot of skills and, and he's quite fluid because he can, he can adapt to the pro game a lot easier than guys like Akoli and, and, and Fowler, especially that's a bit more mechanical um, and, and less fluid. Hey, hey, ki- hey, everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! How is Fowler, by the way, just quickly on him? Because that fight against Fitzgerald, it was a terrific fight. Yeah. Really was. And he said lots of things in the build-up. He meant them all. He's confident. (laughs) Impressed with him afterwards, though, because he took it well. He took it well. He he took it like a sportsman. He gave Fitzgerald his credit. And he had that thing on Twitter of him eating humble (laughs) pie. He tagged it in the rematches. Fitzgerald Fowler, I thought that was good. So he'll have learned, he'll have learned a lot from that, but fair to say that he didn't expect it no the the best thing about it is his attitude right in in the respect that um in the ring before the decision was even given he 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 turned straight to me and went them easy fights i learned nothing he says that's first fight i've learned something from i'll learn from that day and I thought straight away, I thought that's the right attitude I want to wear. His attitude, because we've been ripping him, and I've been ripping him like you've never known about him getting beat. And and he's took it, he's took it really well. He took it how it, how it needs to be taken. But ultimately, um, you, you said it yourself. He didn't expect it. it. Doesn't matter what what we what myself what Bell you, you know. Doesn't matter. You know, you're a fighter. You you if some fighters doesn't matter what some what people are saying around you. They think a certain th- way, and if they think he can't beat me, he got, doesn't matter what he's like, yeah, 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 I get it, yeah, but, but he can't beat me. And he genuinely thought that he couldn't beat him, and doesn't matter what I was saying, he did he put the work in the gym, he sparred absolutely fantastic. I can't knock him for anything in, in training, I can't knock him for anything. He all I said before that fight is if he performs like he's been sparring and like he's been training. He wins this. Complacency is a funny thing, isn't it? Because it does creep in subconsciously. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can spar all the same rounds. You can yeah. get up at the same time. Like sometimes when you say people were, couldn't get up for it or, you know, mm. he was looking past it, you don't mean he was on the piece for, for six no, weeks. You know, no, he was no. in the gym no. training just as hard yeah. as he was for any, but there was just that mental preparation. Yeah. Yeah. His eye wasn't quite on the ball, you that's know, right, and, yeah. and, and that's all it takes. You know, when yeah. you're... At top level sport in any sport, you're talking half yards, yeah. split seconds. It's yeah. it's it's the difference between winning and losing. I mean, for me, and I've said this to you, and I said it. Do you know to what? I, I know what you said, and I took on board. I've took on board what you said. I understand what you know. It, sparring, I don't know what he would have been weighing in sparring or, or or whatever, but 
I know that was the first time he ever made eleven stone. It wasn't. That, it was the second. Was the second, but he's yeah. um, you know, he's very lean and body types of body types. Yeah. It's just sometimes it's not always what weight you can no, make, no. but it's what weight you can perform mm-hmm. best at. And some people can put on 15, 16, 17 pound yeah. and perform great. Some people only put on a few pound. Yeah. Like Carl Frutch. Do you know what he got in the ring was at? massive at do you, know what he, do you know what he got in the ring at that night? 163. Yeah. I mean, Carl Frutch didn't put on much, put on maybe four or five pound from the weighing, but he was lean. He couldn't have made middleweight or maybe he could have made it, but he definitely couldn't have performed yeah. at it. So, I mean, I, I've always thought with Anthony Fowler, yeah. and I, it's like I say, I'm not round him every day in the gym. I'm not, but I've just thought, nah, you're a, you're a middleweight. You're, I, you're I understand the way, where you're coming from that, and and actually, um, you because listen, you're you're talking from from your own experiences because you had that. You told me about when when you had to make like middleweight and think, and how much different you felt. So. I spoke because I have, I have, I have, I have wondered about it myself. But he makes, he eats all the time. He literally eats all the time, and so you think, well, it's it's, it's fine. And, and I've spoken to him before about it. It's, it's fine. No, not a problem. Generally, makes the weight easy. But I had a good talk with you about that that night, and I understand, I understand exactly where you're from because you're the fighter. You've done. You've experienced that. I'll listen to that. You're not just some geezer on Twitter that's just saying, oh, oh, this, this is. I understand where you're coming from. So I actually. My mind started ticking. I rang Carl Froch and I just had a chat with Carl about how, how you know, what what did he get into, how much did he put on, and how did he, what did he walk around at? So I, I acknowledged what you were saying. So then I spoke to Fowler about it, and he's adamant that he's. He, I, I said to him, so I said to him, I said, you know, you come back fight. Why don't we just try? Because you might actually feel better. You don't know, and and I told him that it's come from you. How you spoke. Um, and I said to him, I said, look, Matt's done this before. I says, he's he's been in that position where he's felt that it feels all right. And he's, but when he's moved up, he's felt so much better. I says, you might, because you've got big frame, you, you, you might feel better. I says, why don't we, for a comeback fight, just make it at 11-6. See, my thing with, with, it, with it is, it's not like he's not big enough. No, no, yeah, yeah, And he's strong that. enough. Yeah, yeah. He's not the quickest. No. But he'll be quicker at middleweight yeah. than he was at light middle. Yeah. You know, his hand speed will be better and they won't be as fast yeah. either. And I actually think from he, he'll be, I think he'll yeah. be, whether or not he can make 11 stone and it's not a problem, I just think he'll be a better yeah. middleweight. So, so I've, I, I, I acknowledge that, I understand that. And so I've, I have said to him, let's look at coming in at 11 6 for his fight. His worry is, well, I'm a, he, he literally he spars and he, and he, he walks around constantly. And I mean, eating. And then on a Sunday, he has a big Sunday roast and stuff like that. And he he weighs um, 11 stone nine. So his worry is, if I'm going to be at middleweight, I'm not going to be putting any no weight on. That's his worry about what, but, what but, he's going to be like. I think he's but, being over-obsessed with the weight. Maybe he doesn't need to put weight on. Maybe he will only be 11 nine. Yeah, I get and that. Maybe he'll be giving a lot of weight but away. Maybe, but maybe, he's not giving but, strength away because yeah. he's strong. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He it's is not, very strong. It's, um, I think he'd, even if he was weighing 11 nine, on the night, I think he'd be better at middleweight than he is at light middle. I don't think he's got the, I don't think he's at the speed at light middle. And I think he's too cumbersome. I, yeah, and, I, I, and I get that, and, and that's so. So I have put that to him for this for this fight. I think he's going to fight in June, July, maybe. And I have said, but what I'm not, what I'm don't not forget, saying, he was seventy five kilos in the amateurs. Yeah, yeah, I know he was. But um, but he felt he was small for seventy five. Yeah, kilos. he did. He did. Yeah, he that, said that, that was the problem he had, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he did that, but. What I'm not saying is that he no he didn't get beat because of weight. 
it didn't get beat. He, he got beat by Batman at night, and because he, like you said, subconsciously, consciously, it didn't. Because I saw after four rounds, looking in his eyes, he coming back to corner. I saw a different Fowler. I saw a Fowler that started having doubts in his in, in his mind, and 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 I said I said that to him in the in the corner. I said to him, I said, listen, I said, don't. So don't worry about it. I says this is professional boxing. So he looked to me, Dave. First three rounds, I actually thought he boxed well yeah. behind the jab, yeah. and I actually was impressed with his uh, patience and yeah. temperament, and that he was thinking about it because I was thinking yeah. he might be too fired up, come yeah. out too quick, and yeah. you know, blow a bl- blow up yeah. mid round. But I mean, actually, he he, he was quite uh, thoughtful. He was patient. He was thinking. He was setting everything up behind the jab. He was he was conserving energy. Yeah. And yet he still died of death yeah. in those mid rounds. Yeah, you know. No, I, I get, I get what you're saying. But what I told him was going to happen. I said to him, Scott, I'd box him and target his body. He can't outbox me. And when he was getting his body, he's after the fight. He told me, he says, I weren't feeling him. So I, I had this same thing when Ryan Rose boxed Gary, Gary Lockett. Lockett was just touching him to body, touching him to body, touch. And because he didn't feel him, and I kept saying. Don't let him hit you, Zipboni. But because he didn't feel him, Fowler's thinking, and Ryan did on that night, it's not affecting me. When Ryan dropped Lockett in that 10th round and he wanted to put foot down on pedal and finish him, he had nothing left in the tank. And, 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 and Fowler, even though he's not feeling him, those body shots took everything out of him. Chipping away. And then when he, when he unloaded like a lunatic when, in that ninth round, I said to him before the fight, when you do hurt him, don't waste your time hitting arms and gloves. But he just saw it and he just went for it and he just hit his arms and gloves. And that gassed him. That I th- absolutely and I think him. also there's there's two people involved here. We've got to credit Scott Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald who boxed a great fight. But that's what know, I'm absolutely. saying. It was Fitzgerald's body shots and his boxing that, that, taught, that, that beat him. So it wasn't the It wasn't way. all it was what just, Fowler did wrong. No, it was no, also no. a lot yeah. of what yeah. Fitzgerald was, was great. Yeah. It was a terrific fight. It was exactly yeah. what we hoped it would be. Um, we would all like to, to see it again. And, and it's interesting to hear you talk about it because... It raises all the kinds of issues that trainers have to consider, which is rehabilitating, if that's quite the yeah. right word, a fighter after after a defeat, yeah. particularly one who seems so bulletproof. Yeah. Uh, thinking about weight, things like that. What's the best weight, and and that's that's crucial and, and very tricky at times. And and that kind of brings me into another area we're going to talk about, which is difficult decisions that trainers have to make. Yeah, the most difficult one for me is when to stop a fight and when not to stop a fight. Yeah. The burden of responsibility on a trainer's shoulders is huge because you've got the welfare of your fighter to consider. That is first and foremost. But this is also professional boxing. And yeah. if they're in a title fight, you've got to give them the best possible chance of winning because that win might it might change their life. Yeah. Now, we've seen some examples in recent weeks and... I'm just going to throw them out there to kind of illuminate what we're talking about, but we're not in any way going to get into the rights or perceived wrongs of anything that anyone has done here because it's a split-second decision at times and it's not one that anyone ever takes lightly. Um, you were inside with us for uh, Ted Cheatham against Sergio Garcia, for example. Yeah. If it had been you, I think you would have stopped that one. Anthony Crawler a couple of weeks ago, people saying that that should have been stopped at the end of the third by Joe Gallagher. Last week with Amir Khan, People saying that that one was stopped because they knew what was what was coming, and something about this is is it's a prime candidate for hindsight for for yeah. what people call outcome bias. 
which basically is a fancy term for the use of hindsight and, and how people just judge decisions purely based on what then happens. And with something like Krola Lomachenko, that's so easy to do. Yeah. It's so easy to look at that and say, well, of course you should have stopped it at the end of the third round because look what happened. Whereas if you if you do stop it, then people can't accuse you of that because we don't know the outcome. Yeah. So. It's very, very difficult. Is what I'm is what I'm trying to say. I mean, how do you? What experiences have you had of that as a trainer yourself? And I how stopped, do you kind of weigh it up? I stopped uh, going back to my journeyman days. I stopped Daniel Thorpe. I threw the towel in with Daniel Thorpe when he fought Kevin Mitchell, and I got slated for that. But I know my fighter. You, nine times out of ten, you should have a most trainers have a great relationship with the fighters where they know their fighters they know what they've got left in tank they know what they can pull out themselves and they know when there's, there's distress signals so Thorpe was doing really well with, with Kevin Mitchell in, in that fight and he was he was making Kevin miss he was evading him but he was getting closer and closer he started getting his head dropped back a little bit getting closer and closer and when it just came on top I threw a towel in Thorpe looked at me he was like what are you doing people around knew that I'd done the right thing but then you've got other people saying, oh, you're, try, you're trying to protect, back then, Frank Warren Prospect. This is it. You've got to know your fighter. In in Khan's instance, for instance, I believe Virgil stopped the fight because he knew that his, his, his man was taking some armor, was getting it. He knew what was coming. If, if for the first, where that I see that fight is in every calm fight, he's always been out boxing or he's been competing boxing-wise with his opponents and then he gets caught with a big shot and that's what that does him. This is the first time I've seen Amir Khan getting outboxed and getting taken to bits and getting hurt. And I think Virgil looked at this and just thought, there's no way that you're, you're, you're winning this fight and it's going to end up bad where you have another bad knockout. There you go. Don't That's it. Pull you out. That's how I see it. And I think... How do I think that he's right for doing that? Yeah, I do. Because he's looking out for his fighter. Forget what everybody else wants to say, what everybody wants to talk about, everyone wants to slag you off. They will slag somebody else off next week. You're not there to please the people. You're no. there to look after your fighter. Yeah. Um, I think it's, 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 a, it is, it's a judgment call and, and every situation is unique. There's no exact protocol. I think you could have someone who's lost every round and it's a tough, hard fight. And he's getting a bit of a shellacking, but he's a massive one punch knockout specialist. Yeah. So he's he's in the he's fight. Got, he's got a puncher's all, chance all the way, and you yeah. know he's starting to tire. And you're thinking, you know, he's got a puncher's chance. It's yeah. a world title fight. He's worked hard to get here. He's way behind on the cards. Yeah. He can't win it on points, but he has got those. He has got that one punch power to turn this around. And we've, one we've go. seen that happen and in the past. Yeah, he, he's getting beaten up a bit, but he's a, he's a, you know he's he's it's yeah. a rough and tough type fight. You probably leave someone like that in there. Yeah. When someone's in there and it's like it could have been a close fight after six rounds, but we're now in the tenth and the tide has turned yeah. and if this is only going one way yeah. and he has not got a puncher's yeah. chance and he's getting more and more beaten up, yeah. then you think yeah. and he's a young kid, he's got a, still got a bright future ahead. You think, well, maybe I'm going to save you these last two, three re- rounds of a beating and also of a brutal knockout yeah. and save you for another day. And you also, know, also as a coach, call. you've watched your man in sparring and. When once you've got fighters boxing at that level, especially, you kind of know what they're like when they start losing these few rounds. They start getting hurt. Are they that kind of fighter that can get the groove back? Can come back? Because some fighters can't. Some fighters are great, and then when it starts going against them, they can't pull it back. They can't turn turn the tide. And so, in that case, if that happens in a fight, and then he's just starting to get hammered, hammered, you know for a fact your man's not going to turn that round. 
You know, you've got to look at the fight and can can your man outbox the opponent? Is he is he managing to win it on just boxing and he's just getting caught occasionally and getting hurt occasionally? But is he is he actually being able to outbox the opponent? If he's not, then he's got no chance of winning the fight. You know, and and you've got to look after your fighter. And like you say, it's all right in in hindsight, but we as as coaches, corner men, call it what referees. You have that split second to make a judgment call. This is boxing. This is where fighters getting damaged. This is where fighters, every time you're getting, you're getting punched, you're risking it. You're rolling a dice. So do you do you have a brave corner that stays in there and just says, oh, he's all right. He's tough. He's tough. He's eat it. Oh, he can take that But I, I think it's the tough fighters that need the compassion. Cornerman yeah. need protecting from yeah. themselves. You, you often say a, a brave fighter, the last thing you need is a brave, brave corner. corner. Exactly. But you were a brave fighter yeah. and a very good fighter, obviously. I mean, how do you view it? Because also, you had a few different trainers. Does that make it more difficult? Because your trainer, if he knows you really well, not that I ever remember you doing it, but he would see the distress signals and know maybe that he needed to pull you out, that maybe you wanted him to, but you were never going to say it. That's when you need to know someone well, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I never wanted to. I remember at the end of the 11th round against Sergio Martinez, going into the 11th round against Sergio Martinez, I was... A round down on two of the cards and three up on one. Now, I didn't know this until after the fight, but going into the 11th round, I remember thinking, this is close. I, I need these two rounds, you know, and, and, I, and I, I probably took more chances in the fight, exchanging with a faster guy who had better hand speed, and I came off second best in, the, in, in, the, in an exchange, got put down. Um, first one was probably I was kind of throwing a left hook and it was a bit square but the, the certainly the second knockdown at the end of the round was a good shot hit me bang on the button dropped me got up bell went sat down on the card now as soon as I sat down um, Buddy McGurk goes to me man I'm stopping the fight and I was like no 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 I'm alright and, and as I was about to, as I said no no I'm alright Brian and Seamus my brother both put their hands down like pulled my hands down because I was picking them up going no no I'm alright pulled them down and said, no, 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 that's it, it's over. And I was a bit like, you know, I, there's three people, two, one's my brother and the other, Brian's my long-time manager and buddy who's a boxing guy who I respect. You know, it, I, I've been overpowered then by the three and it's like, I accepted it. And, and looking back, I think they were right because I, I definitely would have gone out, all guns, that would have been a 10-7 round. So I can't win that fight now on points. You know, uh, it was close Anyway, very close as that point. So, with that being a 10 7 round, I'm not going to win this on points. I hadn't looked like knocking him out at any stage of the fight. Mm. All of a sudden, I'm more fatigued than I have been at any other stage of the fight, and I've been put down twice. So, from there, from Buddy's point of view, it was a judgment call, and it was the right call. I think if I was a boxing critic watching it on the telly pundit, I'd be saying that's the right move from Buddy McGirt. You know, um, comparing it to, say, a fight with Jamie Moore when I fell onto my stall at the end of the ninth round. Yeah. I'd, and I'd felt like that from pretty much the third round on, to be honest. I mean, every round I felt like this was my last one and it was empty in the tank because and I'd, I don't know how I kept getting that. I don't know how I went for as long as I did, to be honest. I think it was just one of those nights where I was possessed. You know, I I'd, I'd, I'd dreamt it and fought that fight yeah. so many times in my head that I was so up for it that I just kind of kept going. But... I think, um, and, and Billy has said this to me since, you know, he said, look, son, I should have pulled you out at the end of the night. That was, you know, something I regret and it was a mistake. And it was a mistake, I think, from him because the reality was 
I'd given everything I had and some, and it was a close fight. It, some people could have had me ahead, some people could have had me ahead, but the reality was, and this is where his experience, this is why he regrets it, because he knows he, he is experienced enough to have known, nah, you're done. It yeah. and, and even if it's nip and tuck in the balance, it's like Eddie Futch, Muhammad Ali, you know, that was why everyone respects Eddie Foot so much because there was one round to go. There was nothing in that yeah. fight, but the tide had turned yeah. and Fraser's health was on the line at that stage in such a brutal fight where fatigue and exhaustion is so big. That's where people can die. Yeah. And it, it, it is that judgment call, but I think that's where, you know, I, I know Billy regrets that. And I think that's, that's the difference. I think Buddy was right in the Martinez fight because I, I can't win the fight on points and I haven't looked like knocking him out yeah. at any stage of the fight up to that. And actually he's put me down twice. So, you know, I'm going to go out there, try and keep trying to win. Good, good chance I would have got stopped yeah. anyway. So why not, why not, why not call it now? And, but I think the other, the other example of, of going the other way was where Jamie Moore, nothing left to give. It's a brutal fight. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. I'll do. Do you think sometimes that observers place a bit too much emphasis on on the negatives of a boxer not making it through to the end because we we often hear, oh, he deserves to hear the final bell now. And that may well be true. And and, and I do it myself. You know, I'm pleased when a fighter goes through a a rough ride and they're going to lose and they're going to lose on points. And you know they are, but you're pleased that they've heard the final bell. But sometimes you wonder whether, was that really worth it? Does it it really matter if you pull them out with a couple of rounds to go? Okay, it'll say TKO. So what? Well, there's, and that brings me kind of back onto that point is that, so I got retired at the end of the 11th round against Sergio Martinez. So what? I got, I, I got put down twice, but I retired. I was, my, my, my corner man took that out of my hands and retired yeah. me. Um, Jamie Moore, you know, I ended up getting knocked out cold and, and, and taking an ambulance to hospital yeah. where, don't get me wrong, I think if Billy Graham had stopped the fight at the end of the ninth, I, I think I would have collapsed and gone to hospital yeah. anyway because I was... Yeah, so exhausted, but you know it saves you that kind of brutal yeah. finish. And and you know there's health on the line there. You yeah. know, luckily, I recovered. And actually, everything I achieved in boxing was after the Jamie Moore fight, which was quite remarkable because yeah. most people thought I was never going to be the same if I even boxed. So, um, you know that that's what's on the line. I mean, now that worked out for me, but you know, such, a lot of, like, that could easily gone the other way. That it really is, and it, and and it's only something that can be called. After the event, we hindsight looking back, was it right? Was it wrong? You, you, because nobody knows. Because people, if you pull somebody out, some there's always going to be some people going to say, "Yeah, but he could it, 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 it might have got him next round." You just don't know. But then at the same time, is like Matt has just said, you, you you can get the damage. You know that one shot where you've sent him out, and you know yeah, the fatigue and the other type. But oh come on, we just want to see if we can get him through to the end. That's that's yeah, and I I think it's your experience where you draw upon us and you say, "Oh, well, this could happen." Well, you know, anything could happen. But like you're saying, the Martinez fight—I hadn't looked like stopping him at any point in the fight. So, 
Yeah, maybe I'll go out yeah. there and hit him with a big uppercut. But the likelihood is and not, knock him yeah. out. But it, it, it doesn't seem likely no. at this stage of the fight, considering it and, hasn't looked likely. And up again, to this point. That, that's where where the coach has got to kind of got to know what the capabilities of his fighters are. You know, he's got to know what his fighters like. And 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 again, you'll know in your in, in through sparring sessions, through previous fights, whether your man can, if he's shown where he can carry power right through to the end, even when he's fatigued, he can still carry power. Then he's got a chance. But if he's never shown in his career and he's never, you've never seen that, and he's not seen any any indentations in the opponent whatsoever every time he's hit him during that previous amount of rounds, however long the fight's been lasting, then the odds are it's not gonna he's not gonna pull it off right at the end when he's when he's in bad shape. I think as well that it matters how it's done. It matters how the trainer does it. Or, or rather, it always needs to look like it was the trainer's idea. Because what I never like to see is is a fighter asked by his trainer or by the referee, "Do you want to continue?" A, fight, a fighter's never or, or very because what rare can they say? say what can they say? Yeah. It leaves them with nowhere to go. Yeah. So, as you've been saying before, you need to be able to see those signs and just give them that dignity yeah. of them not having to say it yeah. or look like it's That's their idea. That's what you're idea. there for. You're, you're exactly, there to, that is to, what you're there to for. take the pressure to take the pressure off your fighter. Let the crowd and let 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 the the fans the the the, the media whatever let them blame the coach and say he stopped that too early. I, me- he I remember that. a good example Ra- of that. Rather than the fighter having to have that on his, on his head, he's the one that's in there. He's the one that yeah, he might want to will want to come out of the fight. But he's not going to say that, or very few are going to say that, and that is that's when your, your fight is braver than your corner. But you can just read it, can't you? Yeah. If you know him, yeah, yeah, he'll just he'll maybe just give. And for referees, too, really experienced referees, maybe if a fight has been knocked down, they're they're really close when they're wiping off the gloves, and they'll look at them, and you can almost see them raise their eyebrows sometimes, and they're asking them, they're asking. Them. I I hate it when you see. It's different when when you know if 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 somebody comes back and has a bit, you know, some fighters have a little moan, don't they? Oh, oh, my hands, my hands are in. Do you want me to pull you out of the fight? No. Well, don't worry about your hand then. Get on with it. That's different. But you know when you see a kid that's been getting hammered and he comes back to the corner and you see the cornerman saying to him, do you want me to pull you out? Shall, what, what do you think? Shall I pull you out? No. The no. minute a trainer thinks that he has to ask a fighter for real that question, he should be he should be pulling him out. He shouldn't have, I've seen it. And that winds me up. Yeah, that I winds agree. me up. I mean... Slightly off the subject, but it's, it's a similar thing. I remember back in 2006, I was uh, supposed to be co-feature, chief support fight to John Duddy, uh, boxing at Mad- the theatre at Madison Square Garden. Now, at the time, there was a lot of talk about me and Duddy potentially yeah. fighting, and I was also mandatory challenger for Jamie Moore, uh, British title, and uh, Irish Ropes, who were managing and promoting John Duddy at the time, went to the theatre at the Garden for the first time with John it was a sellout on St. Patrick's Day Eve now I was boxing a guy called Chris Troop who was a pretty decent 10 and 4 you know he hadn't been looked after he'd you know been boxed on a few Blue Horizon cards in Philly you know he had a real record as we talk about Andy and um, John was boxing a guy called uh, Shelby Pudwill who was yeah. a, a terrible 22 and 1 <laughs> you know what I mean he'd, he'd fought absolutely nobody and at the weigh-in, which was down in downtown at the New York, New York State Athletic Commission office, um, Chris Troop came in nine pound over the weight. But 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 as it unfolded, he wasn't nine pound over the weight. He was only something like three or four pound over the contracted weight. He actually had a different, higher contracted weight to come in at than I had. Right. I think it was a sneaky move by the matchmaker at yeah. the time. But. Um, 
you know, and, and of course the New York Commission, because they had the controversy with Joey Gamachi suing them yeah. over the Gatti being so heavy on the yeah. night, wouldn't allow him to take any more than two pound off. So, and I'd actually come in under the weight, you know, because I was I, I wanted to prove that I could get down to yeah. you know eleven stone. So I think I got I think I was contracted to come in eleven three and I come in eleven one. So, um, anyway, that the, obviously there was a lot of commotion and uh, Brian Peters was talking with uh, it was my manager was talking with. Uh, Eddie McLaughlin and the Irish Ropes and there was the commission involved and Billy was there going, what's going on? And anyway, it was, um, you know, I, I think I'd had 50 or 60 family members and friends come over from from Ireland and England to the fight in uh, New York and uh, I wanted to box at Madison Square Garden, at, you know, at all costs really. Um, but um, Billy was concerned that, look, this guy could easily come in and, uh, you know, what's he going to put on overnight? He looked massive. He looked big, he looked big. You know, he looked like he'd been... He'd sucked a lot of weight on to make the weight he'd made. You know, he's going to, he's going to, if he puts 10, 12, 15 pound on, what are you going to put on? Six, seven. And um, so that was a concern. So it was agreed in one of the hotel rooms that uh, on the night that, look, the fight will still go ahead as long as he weighs. He doesn't weigh above whatever it was the next night. So when the next night come along, uh, we get to the, the, the uh, Madison Square Garden, you know, go into a drugs test. All this sort of, and get, about to get my hands wrapped. And then the commission guy comes in. Uh, some, I think Brian Peters comes in. And uh, there's a big commotion. And Chris Troop won't weigh again. And the commission won't allow him to weigh again. He said, whatever the weight was yesterday, that's it. So all of a sudden now, I'm like thinking, what? I'm like, I'm mandatory challenge to fight James Bond. Bucks and this guy, who's actually pretty good. He's a yeah. good 10 and 4. Like, he's a decent fighter. Um you know, this is, this is certainly not an easy fight. You know, what's he weighing now? What am I giving away? This is what's like going through my head straight away. I've got 50, 60 people, family and friends that have paid flights, hotels to come over. I want a box at the garden. Yeah. I've trained for 10 weeks. And fair play to Billy Graham. He just took that decision out of my hands. You know, there was a bit of love of what's, can he, you know, will he weigh, can he weigh and all that. But, but when it come down to it, Billy just took that decision out of my hands. He was very kind of bullish and very strong. He was a strong... Um, he was very strong in that in that area. He said, "No, he said I don't care what's happening. He's not fighting, and that's it. He's got a big, big future ahead of him. He's mandatory challenger for Jamie Moore, blah blah blah, and he could be giving away fifteen, twenty pounds there. It ain't happening. That's it." And I remember feeling relieved because I wanted to fight, but I did, definitely didn't want to yeah, go yeah. in. I didn't want to lose, and, I, and no. I'm starting to think, God, have I been set up here? And this, you know, it was all. I didn't like the smell of it, yeah. and that, that was all going on in my head. And uh, I felt in a in a horrible position. I felt like I had to box yeah. because I'll have bottled it yeah. if I haven't. Yeah. But Billy, in fairness to him, just completely took that out of my equation. And I, actually, and this is a, a funny story. Remember when we, when we left there, we were walking out the back door and Billy Graham, Billy, we're okay to swear here. Billy says, fuck him, Matt. He says, you'll be back here fighting for a world title. They won't. <laughs> and, you know, six years to the day I fought Sergio Martinez for the middleweight world title. Well, that, that brings me on to something that, that I was going to uh, raise, actually, as if by magic. The issue of fighters missing weight, and we've seen a lot of it down the years, and mm-hmm. whether their opponent decides to still take the fight. And generally, they do. Sometimes they don't. Lee Haskins didn't against Randy Caballero. He came yeah. in too heavy and they said okay no we'll take the title thanks but they didn't get paid or they wouldn't have got paid anything like they would have done had they taken the fight and that was a bold bold call you had a really interesting situation difficult situation in Japan with Jamie McDonnell mm. where he did make the weight yeah. he did what you're supposed to do as a professional as a defending champion particularly yeah. and he made the weight 
but we all saw him on the scales yeah. and we all know what he must have gone through to do it. For you, this must be difficult because you know that he doesn't want to give his title away on the scales. There may well have been a hefty financial penalty for missing the weight, but also you've got his safety to think about. The so wor- that must have been a very The worst thing one. about that, that, that was, that was an, a complete nightmare. That's the worst... As a coach, that's my worst experience as a, as a coach in boxing. Um, going to Japan and everything's you deluded and stuff like that. But going to Japan, we went there to try and win. We knew we were in against pound for pound fighter. But James, being a world champion for a long time, he was confident. He was looking great. Everything was great. Everything was great. Right until um, the morning of the weigh-in. And when I walked into his room... And I asked what he'd woke up at. I knew, I knew we were in, we were in trouble. Um, the, this I've got this thing about this, nutritionists and S and C coaches and things like that that come into the game. It's, it's some of them, some of them are very very good. Some of them are very very good, but others just haven't got a clue. And and the nutritionist brought him in heavier. That I know when Jamie wakes up at a certain weight on a morning weigh-in, not a problem. It's it's it's, it's fine. He'll do that weight, not a problem. Um, and this morning, he brought it. It, were, it turned out it was on purpose. The nutritionist had brought him in, and he was over over what he was what he normally wakes up at. And I knew we were in for a problem. And as we went on, I'd said to him. Let's, let's give up your title. It was like I can't, give, I can't do it. It's I can't. I've got his wife there. Now his ex-wife. I've got his wife there, um, and Jamie, and they're saying because <laughs> they've not, they've not been smart. And he's saying if I, if I give up this, I'm not, I, I'm not going to get paid. I'll get fined. This, this, this. We're going to have to remortgage the house. What do you do here? Because he's talking about a, a kid's livelihood you know he's got a family and it's the, it was the worst position I've ever been in and he was adamant that he wasn't going to lose that title on scales he was adamant he said I can do it Dave I'm, I'm, I'm going to make weight I'm going to make weight it did make the weight but it was the worst I've ever seen anybody on scales I used to think Alex Arthur were bad on scales I used to see Alex Arthur and I, I remember once walking in, into a weigh-in late I saw this kid on scales I didn't know Alex Arthur and I know Alex Arthur and it was like the worst I've ever then, seen was Scott Harrison yeah, he was bad. Yeah, he was bad. But Jay was he was it was it was shocking. Um and then from the from from the morning I walked into his hotel room, then it was just about a case of making sure they didn't get out and walking warming him up in the change rooms and everything. I just knew. I just knew. It was just then. It was back to my ideas of when when I was looking after journeyman. So you've gone from Going into a fight with a world champion, preparing to defend and and you know go against a, a great fighter, but going in there to win, to then saying we're looking to to survive. I remember saying to Jordan, to Richard Towers, who was out there as well, and to Danny Wilson, his conditioner, I said to him on the night after the weigh-in, on the night after his eating, I said if we get out at first round. He's done well. I, I, that's that's what I said to them. And my old, my, at that point, you don't care about anything else. 
you just want to make sure if he gets out without getting hurt, the minute he starts getting hurt, I'm pulling him out. And that's that. my mind goes back to then I'm looking after a journeyman. And that was the worst feeling in the world. But that conversation in that in that hotel room when his wife's there and, and, he's, and he turns to his wife, he says, I can't lose my title on scales. He says, what? He says, we can't afford it. And you just, what do you do? You know? Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. What did you do? Well, you're under enormous pressure there when you're thinking in terms of I've got to calculate precisely yeah. when I need to pull him out if yeah. and when it happened. It was over mercifully, briefly, anyway, as it turned out. But that kind of brings me to a stoppage which I have always felt over the last few years was, was a really good stoppage by a trainer. And that was Dominic Ingalls in Kel Brook's fight against Gennady Golovkin. Because going into that fight, he would have known that that was dangerous for Kel Brook. We all knew it was dangerous. And I know he did suffer some serious damage, but I just got the feeling that Dominic Ingall was almost to the second trying to calculate when is the earliest point I can legitimately and feasibly stop this? Because when you saw him on the ring apron frantically waving that towel, it was like he knew every second yeah. counts here. Yeah. This has to stop now. That was um, a great stoppage. Yeah. yeah, that was a great stoppage because he knew he'd given Cal every chance. He'd gone in there and performed above and beyond what yeah. anyone thought he did, put on a great performance. And he was starting to get stick. Yeah. Starting to take a bit more stick yeah. now. You could see Golovkin was getting a bit more urgent. And, and to you could also see Kel giving out distress signals yeah. with his the eye. When he was looking at it, he kept looking at Dom. Kept the eye was coming. bad on that. So, yeah, I, I, I thought I agree with you there. And I thought that yeah. was one of the, in, in recent times, yeah. one where a great judgment call, great timing from yeah. the cornerman to jump it in and stop It was a really good stoppage. Yeah, definitely. It all comes down to just, as you said, to, to knowing your fighter and, and being strong enough to just not care what anybody thinks, just to just to stop that fight and make sure that they leave the ring on their own two feet, under their own steam uh, and well, because at the end of it, nothing else really matters, yeah. does it? It's being compassionate without being queasy. You know, this, yeah. is, this is the hurt business it, it and is. some fights are blood and guts and some fights are so blood and guts, but it's 50-50, there's nothing in it and it's going down to the wire. And then there's ones which might not be anywhere near as brutal, but... He is starting to get a bit beaten up now. He's only 22 years old. He's got a big future ahead of him. It was a gamble anyway. And he's not really a puncher. I'll save him for another day. It, there's so many different it, it, factors that you've got to weigh up. Yeah, and it's so hard because when we look at look at um, Gatty Ward, so we all love that fight. How many times have we watched that fight? It's an amazing fight. Corrales, Castillo. You look at them kind of fights, there's... there's Times in them fights when you can say, "Stop the fight," you know. There's, there's, was it round nine in Gatti Ward when 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 Gatti's absolutely gone. He looks like he's gone. He's crippling over. He's stood on ropes and he's getting pummeled, getting pummeled. 
and and even com- and commentators saying stop the fight, stop the fight, and then he he comes back and we talk about what a great fight that was. You know, look at Castillo, how he lo- uh, Corrales, how he looked, he looked like he was all gone and, and, and finished, but he came back from that. It's those. You just don't know. No, that, that's it's, what I'm saying. It, it depends if stop on a lot those of fights, things, then, yeah. then we wouldn't have had these these great fights. And it's 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 one of those. Hindsight's an amazing thing. Absolutely, outcome bias, as I mentioned at the start. It's it's uh, incredibly easy to think that that all decisions, uh, that all outcomes rather, are, are dictated by decisions, and that if something goes wrong, it's because you made a bad decision. And yeah. It's just not. It's just not as simple as that. Let's move on to something else. Uh, last maybe ten minutes we've got here. So, Luke Campbell will fight for a vacant WBC lightweight title. We know that now. Mikey Garcia has moved into the position of champion emeritus, so champion in recess, which is a good move by the WBC, I think. Not before time. Keep this title active. We don't know yet who Campbell will box. The front runner for me would be Devin Haney. He's at number three. Uh, a Russian fighter called Zorub Daliev is at number two. But, but Haney is a known fighter. He's now a matchroom USA fighter. There'd be the most noise and publicity and money, therefore, around that fight. And you'd imagine that will attract the governing body. I use this as an example because it is a good example to introduce um, this next topic. Let's say it is Campbell against Haley. We're not going to talk about who's going to win or anything like that. But just the dynamic in terms of UK fighter against US (laughs) fighter for vacant title. Now, recent boxing wisdom would decree that the UK fighter should say to his promoter, I need this at home because that will give me the best possible chance of winning. Never mind the money. That might see me shorted on the money, but I want it at home because I'm thinking long-term and this will give me the best possible chance of winning. That's what you and Gavin McDonald did against Ray Vargas. But in the current climate, will that be in the UK or do you think that would head over to the USA? I I think that could still be in the UK because I think that's the one that... Eddie could maybe bring build a pay per view fight around, um, which would 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 you know I know maybe not Luke Campbell against Haney on its own as the main event, but if he if got a really strong card and did a big gate, they could maybe do that here. I I would be surprised if that's over here, for the simple reason that I think Haney's being groomed for superstardom. I mean, before Matchroom have got him, they've got him now, and that's a great great signing because as far as prospects go in in, in America. He's being seen as the new superstar, the new, you know, he's going to be another Mayweather, not quite as good, but he's going to be another Mayweather type. Um, so therefore, Eddie's trying to crack America. He's trying to build a star in America, which he needs to do. And for me, he's he'll have the fight over there for him to build around him, challenging for his first world title. Do you think that dynamic has is, is, is changed because I looked at how many world title fights we've had with British and Irish fighters this season, and I'm pretty sure I counted them all up. And I worked out that 75% of them, the British fighter or Irish fighter, uh, has been away. There's some strange ones. Obviously, Calify against Israel Gonzalez mm. is in Monaco. Who's home, who's away? <laughs> it's a matchroom show, so I suppose Cal's at yeah. home. But there are difficult ones to work out uh, for, for those reasons. Uh, Katie Taylor, for example, she's on matchroom shows, but she's boxing in America. I guess she's probably at home. Again, difficult to say, but there is a trend at the minute for for matchroom UK fighters to go and box in the USA. I understand it because they've got this big deal with the zone, and they're paying a lot of money at the minute to zone. And if you're a UK fighter, there's quite a lot of short term thinking in boxing sometimes. But for a reason, given boxing history, you want to go over there. That's, and get that's it. what we did with Jamie McDonald. 
because with with Cabana fights because back then it was Ali Heyman's money and it was Thankal because he was making a bantamweight in Jamie a lot of money a lot a lot more money than what he was making over here so financially it made more sense for him to go over there Gavin was different with with um, Vargas because we had the opportunity of taking a lot more money out out in Mexico but that Gav Gav wanted to, every chance that he like you said every chance that he could get of winning that fight. He wanted it, so he wanted it over here. So he took absolute peanuts to get the get the champion over here and get that fight over here. Um, because it was probably a cheaper fight, it could it could happen. It, it could happen that way. I know what you're saying about about um, Campbell and uh, Haney possibly being over here because Eddie can build a pay per view. But I think that'd have to be a monster card because. No disrespect to Luke, but so far he's not really been a draw over it. Oh, you're right. It, I think it, it, it'd be the card that would be pay per view, and that just may be the jewel in the crown of that card. Yeah. But I don't think uh, him that fight on its own is but worthy I, of pay per view. But you see, to to build a card around Cam- Campbell for that day, because he has to build a card around the Dylan White fight and things like. I don't think because of what he's doing with with America as well. And the fighters, it's UK fighters that, like you're saying, that, that are boxing out in America as well. I don't know if he's, if he can make the fights to make a Campbell card look as attractive that it needs to be to be paid for you over here and to sell out a big arena. Yeah, I think I think where, where Eddie's at, you know, he's obviously got, getting big money off the zone, and you have to go where the money is. The fighters want the best money, and if that's in America, yeah. so be it. But I th- also think he'll be trying to balance things and, mm. and you know yeah. Sky is, he's, has been his, his platform and yeah. he's got an exclusive deal with them and it's been a great relationship so I do think he'll be trying to make sure he can do a good you know obviously AJ's gone to America because yeah. it, it made sense at the time yeah. with the Miller thing obviously that's hasn't worked out as everyone would have liked but I would imagine okay he's getting Dillian White in July but I'd imagine they're going to look to go again around September if they can get the right fight I, ju- I just think that Haney's Haney's the next big that he's going to see him as his flagship for America that's the because he's you know he's, he's wanting to get a so, so big here's prospect a question, over then, there do you think that Eddie thinks he beats Luke Campbell I don't know. You'd have to ask Eddie. But 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 if he's if yeah, I I if I'm if I'm being honest, I've never spoke to him about it or anything. But seeing the fact that he's got here now and he's going to be the star out in America for him, if he's gonna if he's gonna make that match for him against Luke Campbell, then I would say on a promoter's with a promoter's mind, you want the most marketable, most profit making fighter to win. And I would say that he would hedge his bets that moving forward, Haney could could be more for the for the matchroom stable than what what Campbell's going to be. That's how that's how I would look at it as a promoter because if you're looking at him as being a star, it's not just me that's Haney's going to star. Everybody in America thinks Haney's going uh, Haney's going to be a star. So then that would automatically manage it. Whoever you want to build, if you're if you've got a star and you want to build him into a superstar. Then you obviously want the right fights that are going to make him look good and, and, and make him win, and, and that he's going to win. So if he matches him with another matchroom fighter, I, my own opinion, is then I would think that he's hedging his bets towards towards them. Yeah, and also it's not just the fact that it's American and England. If it fights in England at eleven o'clock, that's not prime time in, in the America, USA. Is no, it? no, no. Well, these are the kinds of problems you have when you when you do big big yeah. deals, and they're, yeah. they're, they're they're not victims of their success. There's no there's no victim no. here, but matchroom of you know they have 
they push the envelope in such a way that these are the things they now have to think about if you're going to be a force yeah. in the UK. But let's not let's not forget the if, USA. If 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 Luke's got to go to America to fight, ain't it? Luke's can get get paid good. So it's not like he's uh, he's forcing a fighter to to go over there for peanuts. Oh. It's it's not that. It's just that it, you have to every whether it's TV, whether it's promoters or whatever, they've got to look at it as a, a as a yeah, business. Whoever so, whoever doesn't get home advantage yeah. has to get adequately compensated yeah. for that. Yeah. yeah. So just to talk about it from from a a slightly different perspective, but but again in kind of broad terms uh, in 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 so much as has the landscape changed really, which was why I sort of introduced this. In years to come, your man Michael, Michael Conlon, he may well be up for a vacant title. He may well have the same situation. He's with top rank, obviously, a US promoter. So were he to fight for a vacant title against an American, would you be thinking we need to get that back in Ireland or would you be expecting it to go to the States? No, I think that would probably happen in the States because he draws so well Massive anyway in the in States, York, isn't it? Yeah. As he does, you know, Belfast, obviously. But, you know, the big the big thing for Michael would be to box primetime on ESPN and also in New York, yeah. you know, Madison Square Garden. He's he's uh, he's packed that out several times now. And, you know, for, for, for me, the thing with, with, with Michael Conlon, there was talk, I've seen it. Um, you know, I'm not so much involved in his career anymore, but obviously still very much rooting for him and, and, and follow his career. I, I read that he's talking about going down to possibly Super Bantam and I really believe that that is the right move because I think right now looking at the featherweights, I don't, I'm not sure I see him beating any of the featherweight champions that are currently champion right now but you know we're going we're gonna to talk about them in a bit. TJ Dahane and Danny Roman, I, I think Conlon could beat both of those yeah. guys. You know, and, uh, but would you think, would He's a massive kid. Would he make that weight? Yeah, no, he, he can make super bantamweight. I, I know he can make it, yeah, definitely. He, you, sound, uh, you sound like me with Fowler. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, but Fowler's big and strong. Yeah. Michael's not big and strong. Yeah. Michael's a very clever, very skillful yeah. boxer. He doesn't carry power, He's uh, but he's very clever and yeah. he's very smart and he's got great skill. Yeah. Um, he needs all the physical advantages or, or yeah. you know, he, makes, he needs to make yeah. the most of, out of all the physical yeah. things he can. So for me... At featherweight, he's not strong enough. At, at super yeah. bantamweight, I think he can definitely win a world title. And and touching what you were saying there about where would it be? I was at his debut in New York. Oh my god, I've never seen a debut like it. It was rammed and atmosphere was unreal. So I don't think it makes any difference for as as you know as far as home advantage. I think he's at home whether he's out, out yeah, there he's or, or he's Madison Square weird. Garden yeah. is his home, yeah. you know, away from home. So he's uh, he's always going to be the home fighter there. Yeah. And um, it would be prime time on ESPN. They'd want the most amount of viewing figures yeah. uh, to boost his profile. But like I say, I, I think the move for him is, is to get, get down mm. to super bantamweight. And maybe it's just the fact that boxing's become more... I don't know if global's quite, quite the right word now, but the fighters have to try and build a fan base everywhere. You mentioned TJ Doney. He's never boxed a single professional minute in Ireland because <laughs> no. he, he turned over in Australia, yeah. then went to Boston, won his world title in Japan. And there are plenty like him. You can build a following in, in different places. And with social media now and the way it's possible to promote yourself more widely, you can do that. So maybe that's the way people I need think- to look at it from now on is that I need to appeal to fight fans Yeah. Anywhere and everywhere, not just in my own backyard. Well, it's definitely more of a global sport, and certainly from a television point of view, with streaming and yeah. apps and things, yeah. it, it's it's time zones 
matterless yeah. you know smart tvs you can buy yeah. the app you can stream it so it, it is definitely uh more global i think from you know from a uk point of view a uk a british fighter point of view um there's always been a strong uh market here in the uk down through the years in terms yeah. of building big fan bases gates uh big television money and media attraction uh ireland has always been you know, up until recent times, been a very much an immigrant nation, you know, and there's massive Irish diaspora worldwide, Australia, yeah. America, and particularly the East Coast of America, and England, massive, you know, I think there's something like 6 million people in Britain whose grandparents were born and raised in Ireland. So there's massive, the Irish diaspora is one of the biggest diasporas in the world. And uh, on the East Coast of America, if you get, I mean, John Duddy, back in the mid-2000s, was the biggest draw on the east coast of America outside of a Torogati, you know, which is quite a phenomenal yeah. stat, really. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it is more global, but you do have hotbeds and you do have yeah. certain areas where certain fighters are more marketable. Okay, well, I think we'd probably better wrap it up because we're not too far away from, from our call time. It's been, uh, it's been very enjoyable. There's, there's, there are certain debates which will just go on and on and on and... and I'm just always really interested, Dave, by the by the decisions that, that, that trainers have to make because they're so heavily scrutinised and you get so little time often to think about them and you have to try and think very objectively and very impersonally, generally about someone that you are emotionally attached to. Yeah, you, you, have, you have to go with what you feel is right and you have to stand by it. And if it's a wrong decision, you accept the, the flack. And to be fair, even if it, if it is actually the right decision, you'll still get stack, uh, flack off people. That's how that's how it is. You can, that's the the thing about you know social media. It's a fantastic thing. You know, we were saying about making it a global sport. Um, it's fantastic, but it gives everybody a loud opinion that that you hear. And you, if you if you lived your life and made the decisions in the ring as a fighter, trying to entertain when when maybe you don't have to entertain, you can just win the fight. Or as a coach, trying to make a decision, what, oh, what am I going to get a stick on TV? I'm going to. You can't do that. You can't. You, you have, have to. You have to, to, to call it as own, it is. Your trust own your own abilities, abilities yeah. and knowledge and, uh, and opinions, yeah. and and you stand by them. Okay. Well, what I like to say is, end of day. <laughs> We're not doing anything that not, nobody else can't do. Every single person that's watching, every single person that's listening to this podcast, if they can do a better job, they can go and get a license, train up, be a fighter, train up, be a coach. Anybody can do it. So if, if we're doing such a bad job, there's always somebody else that can do a better job. Well, likewise with this, if uh, anybody can buy go. this kit that me and Matt have and start up their own <laughs> podcast. So, but Mo, as I said at the start, the feedback we've, we've, we've been getting has been has been good, but anything you've got to say to us, you can approach either of us on Twitter. We've got a thick skin, so long as it's constructive, we will <laughs> we will listen to it. And if you've got some questions that you want to put to us week by week, then by all means do that. Uh, we'll flag it up when we're going to do our next one. We're in Nottingham on May the 10th. Your man in action, Jordan yeah. Gill, top of the bill. Uh, so we'll be doing one around about then, I'd have thought. But uh, thanks very much for your company, Dave. Been an Cheers absolute pleasure. Matt, thanks as always. And uh, we will catch you all again next time. Sports Social Podcast Network.